This next topic has been described as vital, powerful, and life-changing. Join us for our discussion on functional communication training. Up next on the BT Focus Podcast. Welcome to the BT Focus Podcast, dedicated to the behavior technician experience and the delivery of ABA services. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the BT Focus Podcast. Joining me as always is Ian McGarvey. Ian, welcome back. Brian, happy Wednesday. We're halfway through. Happy Wednesday, man. Hey, so as we're preparing for this episode, it's like more and more fitting that we're going to be talking about manned training today, right? We're going to talk about a really important form of verbal behavior. And I was engaging in a lot of manned training before we logged on because I was pleading with my computer to please pick up the microphone, please log on. So I was engaging in all sorts of requests to the the computer IT universe to cooperate. And it finally is in. So I'm so happy to be back with you. Brian, if we want to get real nitty gritty verbal behavior, that would fall under the context of what we call a magical man. Oh, a magical man. That sounds very precise. Which which means that you're emitting a request with which you've never had previous reinforcement history. That's not going to actually produce an outcome. Hence the word magic, right? You believe (laughs) something's going to happen. That's really not going to happen. Yeah. So, well, can I throw one more really fun man vocabulary out there for you? Absolutely. I know, you know, this one, the omnibus man, omnibus man. It means I'm going to emit a single response and I get everything that I want. So my computer is going to work. Um, I'm going to have something awesome for lunch. Everything that I want will just come true as a result of this man. That's kind of a, maybe a very loose definition. I'm but... trying to think of what all would happen if I emitted the omnibus man. <laughs> all of your wishes will become true. There would be a deep dish pizza sitting in front of me. Right now. Yeah. Sign me up, man. It's it's like 9.30 a.m. Eastern time and I'm ready for a deep dish pizza. Nope. <laughs> Well, I can think of no better introduction uh, than that, Ian. So thanks for humoring me. Um, So we're going to talk about our May clinical topic. Can you believe it's May already, Ian? Like, what the heck? This year's flying by. You know, I'd say say May flowers, but it seems to be a lot more May showers than May flowers these days. Yep, yep, yep. Just we're close. We're knocking on the door to summer and I can't wait. So we're going to be talking about our May clinical topic of the month. That's going to be discussed at all of our team meetings throughout the country. And we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, functional communication training and specifically manned training. Okay. So we're going to give you a rundown, 10 things you need to know, 10 pro tips about mans. But I think primarily best place to start. Number one, manned. What are we talking about, Ian? Could you define that for us? Yeah, the manned. So we'll first go with the the real, again, nitty gritty verbal behavior definition. So the manned is a is a verbal response. It's a verbal behavior, which is primarily under the control of what we call a motivating operation. Uh, Sometimes it can be partially under the control of another stimulus, such as a verbal discriminative stimulus or the the presence of the item. Um, But typically we would say that it's under the control of a motivating operation. So to be a less, little less formal about it, a man is the way that one verbally, and I'm putting that in quotations that people can't see, verbally Mm -hmm. asks for things that they are motivated for, things that they want. Yeah, 
absolutely. I think BF Skinner would be very proud of your more complex definition to start things, but in more non-technical everyday terms, when we were referring to a man, we we're referring to a request. And remember being an early behavior technician, studying for the RBT exam, easy way to remember what a mand is in terms of like our different types of verbal operands. You can think of a command or a demand, right? Um and I'm so glad to talk about the motivating operation because motivation is a really key aspect about man training, which we'll get more to in a minute. Um, let's transition to point number two. Ian, why is it so great to teach mans? Why is functional communication training so awesome? There are a lot of different verbal operands that B.F. Skinner defined back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s when he did his research on verbal behavior and eventually wrote verbal behavior in 1957. The mand is the only verbal operant that actually directly benefits the person who's speaking. So when we actually talk about verbal behavior, and this is, again, real nitty-gritty here, verbal operants are defined based on the behavior of a listener and a speaker, speaker being the person speaking, as you would guess. In the case of the man, the speaker, it's the only verbal behavior one can engage in that actually directly benefits the speaker. So... So, and which makes sense. We get what we want when we emit a man. It produces an outcome in the environment that directly impacts the speaker. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I would say that it's a really great intervention. It has a lot of what we would say social validity. You know, people are really in demand training because it produces reinforcement for the learner. It is highly correlated to decreasing problem behavior. Think about it. If we have a means to communicate that's more effective and less effortful than some form of problem behavior, we're going to see that problem behavior decrease over time. And some of the most beautiful mm -hmm. graphs um, I've seen, it shows the correlation between the number of communication responses and it's directly correlated to a decrease in, in that problem behavior. We'd say it's inversely related. So as Functional communication goes up, problem behavior goes down because the learner has a more effective way to contact that reinforcement and to to get the requested item or activity or et cetera. So um, man training is pretty awesome because it teaches really important skills that makes our learner's life better, more enjoyable, and decreases problem behavior, all, all kind of wrapped into one. Um, yeah. So two comments on that. Two comments on yeah. that, Brian. First one, to just kind of piggyback off what you said, I actually met with a supervising clinician and a behavior technician yesterday. A um, few weeks ago, we actually put in a manned goal for a client with which we said that the client needed to have an X number of essentially a, a rate of mans per hour of session. And since putting in that goal, not only have we seen the technician be successful in meeting that man goal very consistently, but alluding to what you said, we've seen a natural decrease in problem behaviors, specifically self-interest behavior by this client, just from putting in a manned goal where the technician is required to get so many manned trials within a session. That's so, awesome. That's such yeah. powerful. Powerful. Data. Great word. Yeah. Use. It's so powerful. Absolutely. 100%. Um, and the second point I wanted to make is continuing to piggyback off what you said. We work with children who... Autism, although it's, you know, part of the diagnostic criteria for autism is a deficit in, in communication and social communication. There is a lot of literature that circles around pointing out the fact that, you know, being able to communicate is a large deficit for people with autism. And one of the first building blocks of communication that we learn 
as an infant is how to get our wants and needs met. And that is manding. We know also from literature and from our own experiences that typically developing children, neurotypical children, they learn communication and, and formal language very naturally. They don't have to be directly taught a lot of language. They pick it up. They learn it through imitation, through natural environment learning, uh, through what we call observational learning, which is a form of imitation, if you will. Um, children with autism, that does not necessarily happen. And that's why we're here. We get a lot of children at ages of four, five, six, sometimes all the way into their adolescent years who have no functional communication and specifically talking about no way of communicating their wants and needs and man's. They, they don't know how to mand. And so oftentimes when we begin therapy with a client, the first thing that we do is establish a way for them to communicate their wants and needs. Yeah. And that is so critical because like you said, it, especially when you have kids who engage in really, really severe problem behaviors, that is one of the easiest ways to help alleviate that to an extent. Not always all of it, but that is going to have the biggest impact on the life of that child. Completely, Ian. And I think that's a very good natural transition to point number three. And I want to circle back to your air quotes around verbal behavior, right? Because point number three is what what do man's look like? Because they can take a number of different forms, right? Um, so would you care to elaborate? Yeah, absolutely. So when B.F. Skinner defined verbal behavior back in the thirties, I believe is when he first kind of introduced verbal behavior. Um, at the time, linguistic study was becoming a very prevalent thing. People studying language and BF Skinner was very direct in specifying that the way that linguists at the time were studying language was just not the way to go about it. And where I'm going with this is, is linguists, you know, when we grew up learning language in school, we learned about pronouns, adjectives, all these different ways to define language by how we use it in everyday speech. B.F. Skinner defined language based on its outcome, its function, what it accomplished. So the mand, as you would guess then, all of verbal behavior in general is not usually specified by how it is formulated or how it sounds or how it looks. It can be written. It can be said, it can be signed, it can be spelled, it can be counted on fingers. Uh, so what I'm getting at is, is demand can look like anything. And everything that you just described would fall under the umbrella of verbal behavior. Yes. Right. Is. And I think this is... Um, I'm sure this was a mistake that I made early in my career as well, because sometimes people will equate verbal behavior just with spoken language. And you might hear, oh, this child is nonverbal. However, the child has like a fully developed sign language repertoire or they're using pecs or they're using, you know, some sort of augmentative device. And the more appropriate term would say that this child's skill repertoire is currently nonvocal meaning they might not have as much spoken um, functional communication. However, there's a number of different ways that they can communicate and express their wants and needs. So I just, as maybe a little bit more uh, technical, but for those of you who are listening, maybe a takeaway is differentiating um, vocal behavior, spoken behavior with verbal behavior, which has all of those accompanying uh, different forms or topographies as you were describing. Yeah. And one of the ways that you can accomplish that is by including both. So if you have a client who maybe just like you described is a fluent signer and isn't vocal, you could say a non-vocal verbal learner where that specifies to someone that they're not vocal, but they still have a formal communication of some kind. 
Absolutely. Those different forms are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, I think that's an important thing to note because I think sometimes maybe you have a early learner that doesn't have that vocal repertoire and there might be a recommendation by the BCBA to put in a PECS book or some sort of alternative communication. And sometimes I think parents, understandably so, might be somewhat hesitant because they think, oh, we're giving up on vocal language. And that's not at all the case. What we're trying to do is we're trying to put in place skills that are more effective, that can more safely result in that reinforcer or those items or activity that the child is seeking out while teaching that vocal behavior. And actually, there's lots of great studies to show a correlation between, you know, PECS development and then later vocal development, right? Um, Those milestones and those accomplishments can come together. And in fact, why it's so powerful is it shows the learner that they can have an effect on their environment, right, through through their requests. So um, really good. I think that's a great distinction, Ian. So thanks for that explanation. What else do you want to add to that? So going back to the notion of the MAND being able to be different types of topographies, like you mentioned, vocal, signing, picture exchange. Uh, so one comment you did just make I want to elaborate on is, yes, there is a lot of literature to support that augmentative communication only further increases the likelihood that a child may at some point become vocal. And that's important for us to be able to communicate to families. We oftentimes have a lot of families who, especially when we're initially assessing or initially starting therapy, autism is a new thing to them and it's it's unknown for most people and they don't know what to expect from what we're doing and they don't know where their child's going to be in six months, one year, five years, 10 years. And a lot of parents might initially be very apprehensive when we present the need to in, include augmentative communication in their child's therapy. Reason being that if, you know, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine if I was, that if someone came to me and mentioned we were going to begin using sign language or picture exchange with their child, that my first question will be, well, what about vocal language? Like, are we just ruling that out? And we're not. And like you, you alluded to, the literature shows that augmentative communication increases the likelihood that a, a client might become vocal. And especially at an early age, again, verbal behavior is not just vocal, So when we first get a child in therapy that has autism, we want them to have some means of formal verbal communication because initially it doesn't matter how they're communicating. It matters that they're communicating, that they learn the contingency of, I engage in this specific behavior and it always results in me getting what I want. Because you're right, Ian, because they're going to be communicating their needs anyway. Right. And if they don't have a safe and effective skill, how are they going to be communicating? What would, what does that look like in its, in its absence? Yep. Problem behavior, right? Problem behavior. Yep. Yep. And so then two, two points to make off. Every time you make a comment, I just, (laughs) we just keep branching off. Yeah. I've got more to go. So first one is let's talk about problem behaviors real quick. Are problem behaviors considered verbal behavior? Yeah. And you're, and yeah, I was about to say you're nodding your head. Yes, but not saying, yeah, absolutely. And (laughs) so one thing that we forget that some people forget is, and, and one thing that's harder for people outside of our field to grasp is problem behaviors are a means of communication for people who don't have verbal skills or vocal skills, you know, either way we want to say it. And we have a lot of kids who, when we first, they first come to us, they engage in maladaptive behaviors. And there's a phrase out there that we've used a couple of times based on BF Skinner and Ogden Lindsley 
and Fred Keller. And that, that phrase is the, it started out as the rat is never wrong. And it's been translated into the learner is always right. And what that means is, is we as individuals find ways to have our needs met. And once we find a way to get a need met, we're, we're going to run with it. Yeah. You know, and an example I'll give is we've all probably had a, a point in time in our life where something was aversive and we found a way to deal with it. And it may not have been the best way to deal with something, but it worked. And so we said, you know what? I'm just going to run with this because now I know how to get through this. And there may be a better way, but this way works. So I'm just going to stick with it. And that's what happens to kids with problem behaviors is they don't know how to get a need met. Mm -hmm. At some point in time, a certain behavior, presumably a problem behavior of some kind, got their need met one time. And I can sidetrack for, for days on this topic, but that just explains the power of reinforcement. Yep. That sometimes all it takes is one time to reinforce a behavior of such. And it's like the old Pringle saying, once you pop, the fun don't stop. <laughs> all it takes is one instance of reinforcement to make a behavior really strengthen. And that's where we come in as we see these clients who have had these problem behaviors reinforced because they've had no other way of having their needs met. Absolutely. And, you know, these behaviors often are shaped up over a significant period of time. So, and to have a, like a high degree of empathy for parents in these situations, because I think some people might be tempted to say, well, how did this happen in the first place? How did this behavior occur? Um, when you're a parent and you see your child engaging in self-injurious behavior or some severe forms of problem behavior in the moment, oftentimes it's what can I do to stop this immediately? Right. 100%. And to your point, yes, sometimes that results in reinforcing that behavior, which sometimes will strengthen it. So, yeah, I think it's an important thing to note. Like behaviors are always going to be a result of their consequences. And if problem behaviors are reinforced, they're more likely to occur. So tying all of this back to man training and functional communication training is let's find a safer, more effective, less effortful way for the child to express their wants and needs and then let's run with it because that's where we can build skills. So yep. awesome. And, and again, just continue on my rant. The MAND acts as what we call a behavioral cusp, which I believe we've spoken about briefly before. And what that means is when we get these kids, these children with autism who have, you know, sometimes very little to no functional skills. And in this case, functional communication skills. Again, I'm going to use the Pringles analogy. Once you pop the fun, don't stop. A lot of times when you teach a child their first manned, if you will, a lot of times that turns into a switch that's been flipped. And the next thing you know, that kid just starts acquiring things quickly and quickly. And I think of it almost as like an upside down pyramid where you maybe put a drop of water on top or a couple of drops of water and it just spreads. Mm. And, and, and we start to not only start getting mans, but then we can emerge into other different types of verbal behavior, like tacting and intraverbals and transcription and other more complex types of verbal behavior. And that first building block is the mand. And again, another reason why just teaching the mand is so important that we can't get to other steps of language that without that first initial, you know, building block of teaching the mand. Yep. Very well said, Ian. Okay, great. So, so far we've talked about what is a mand, why they're so great, what do they look like? Now let's transition a little bit more into some practical hows, okay? And talking about functional communication training, man training, how do we start to select appropriate mans, right? Let's say you need to teach a learner to admit five different types of requests. What are some considerations that should be made in terms of what those five requests are? 
right? Or what are those initial mans that we'll teach that we can then um, shape and develop into further skills? Great question, Brian. So when a child, again, when we're talking about teaching a child to man and just real quick, go jump back to the situation regarding problem behaviors. We need whatever that initial mander mans that they learn are going to be. We need those reinforcers to be word you just used earlier that that's going to fit the, the need right here. Powerful. We need powerful reinforcers. We need reinforcers that are going to be able to be made available immediately and frequently. That child needs to see a very abrupt change in their environment when they emit this response that we're saying is a mand. So my go-to whenever I'm initially teaching mans is normally the best first man to teach is going to be their most highly preferred edible reinforcer because food is what we would call an unconditioned reinforcer, which means that by birth, it is reinforcing. We don't have to teach it. So food is always going to be a very, very powerful reinforcer. I know it is for me. So <laughs> me, me too. Again, deep dish pizza, you know, um, and food can normally be made immediate and, um, excuse me, made available immediately as well as frequently. Um, and although we do have sometimes periods of satiation, if used well, we can use food pretty consistently throughout a long period of time. Um, and again, when we're talking about levels of motivation, where a person's motivation is likely to be more consistently is with unconditioned reinforcers over conditioned reinforcers. Yep. Yep, absolutely. I think you hit some key points. And here's where I think our behavior technicians can really support in this process. They're going to know our learners better than just about anyone, right? And having them there to provide feedback in terms of what are some of the most preferred items, activities, food items, et cetera, that we can use for that man training. Um, I think that's a really great way that they can collaborate and assist their supervising clinician is um, contributing to the target selection within man training. And yes, food is a very powerful reinforcer. And the key there is the ability initially to be able to deliver it immediately and as frequently as possible. Um, but it doesn't just have to be food. Like let's say, for example, the child is really into bubbles. It's, an, it's something that maybe they have some uh, echoic or tact repertoire already now, when you're playing with that child, we're, talk, we're going to talk about next into contriving situations. Um, if they have the ability to emit that response and they're highly motivated, the number one thing with man training is you need to have motivation in place, right? That motivating operation is going to be totally related to the frequency of those requests. So find something that they're highly motivated for and, and that will shape your target selection. And Brian, how are we going to find things that they're motivated for? Oh, good question. Ding, ding, ding. Going full circle. I would recommend checking out our episode on preference assessments, Ian. That's a great question. <laughs> great place to start. 100%. 100%. Yeah, that should inform so much of what we do is our clients' preferences really driving that learning. So good going full circle, Ian. You get bonus points for that. Absolutely. And and one point I just want to reemphasize that, that you hit there, but I really want to swing away with a home run is... Behavior technicians listening, we always as BCBAs need your feedback because as supervising clinicians, we're only there 10% of the time that you're there. You see 90% of what goes on without our eyes and we need your input when we're needing to determine these kinds of things. 
And I highly encourage that when you have recommendations and there's things you see, make sure you're communicating those things to your clinicians. Because again, we only see the client 10% of the time. There's only so much we can gather from 10% of observing the client. Yeah, completely. All right. So how about this, Ian? So here's what we're going to do. A lot can be said about functional communication and man training. So what we're going to do is we're going to divide this into a part two. So behavior technicians, supervising clinicians, tune back in. Here are some other topics that we're going to explore next time. Okay. One, how can we best arrange the environment for success with man training? Because that is going to be a really critical um, part of the process is how we're preparing for um, these sessions. What are ways that behavior technicians can take data on man training? What are some different forms and, and what would that look like in their practice? Um, couple of pro tips, some strategies on man training and some um, effective techniques that you can use when it comes to man training. Next, as learners advance, what are ways that we can make man training more complex? And how does schedules of reinforcement play into any of this? And finally, what are some good skills to teach after man training or in conjunction with man training? So much more to be said. And let's just continue this conversation, Ian, because this is such a critical topic. We're talking about communication, right? It's life-changing for families. So I want to explore all the topics that go along with it. Three, three words you just said there, critical, important life-changing. That's it. It's that important. So let's just keep the conversation going. Uh, would love to hear any feedback from the field on experience with man training and you know other ideas that you'd want us to explore. But Ian, it's a pleasure as always. Heck yeah, I'm ready for part two. Let's do it. Hi, BT Focus listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Now, we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at our Google Voice account at 248-215-2464 if you have any thoughts, ideas, or questions. You may even hear them on the air. Or drop us a message at btfocus at centriahealthcare.com. Until next time.